Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. Remain standing, if you will, and take your Bibles. And after a three-week hiatus, we're once again back in the book of James. So turn, if you will, to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And as you're turning there... Uh, you, you will have noticed the tent and the pop-ups and all the tables and chairs set up out here. Well, as you know, that didn't just happen. We didn't just arrive here this morning and it was all set up. Uh, I just, so I just want to thank uh, the men who showed up and uh, yesterday, or actually Thursday evening, set the tent up and uh, we're probably here again early this morning getting things all taken care of. And I just want you to know that I really appreciate that and I want to... Uh, just especially thank Paul Davis. Uh, anytime you see that tent set up here, uh, Paul Davis has been the one that's responsible for getting that done. He's, he's just a great example of one of those... Uh, he's a great example, another great example of one of those who just quietly serves, is ready and willing to serve anytime there's a need. He's always ready and willing to be inconvenienced. Uh, if that's what it takes to get the job done, but he's just there, just a faithful servant, and, and we love him. And thank you, Paul, and again, thank you to all the men who showed up to help set that up. We appreciate it very, very much. So James chapter 2, our text for this morning is verses 8 through 13 as we continue moving through this book. So if you'll follow along as I read James chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. May the Lord bless the reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, as you know from our study in James so far, the real living faith to which believers have been born through the word of truth is a faith that both humbly hears what God says and then does it with a willing heart. What we do says far more about the authenticity of our faith than what we say we believe. And that is James' great concern. 
that believers are doers of the Word, that we actually live according to the Word, that our new life in Christ is expressed in outward behavior consistent with a genuine faith. A faith which we have learned will be manifested by living in obedience to God's Word, reflected among other ways by keeping a tight rein on our tongue, by sacrificial love and compassion in meeting the needs of others, by personal purity, and as we have learned in chapter 2, by not showing partiality. And if you'll remember, uh, partiality is the idea of making an instant superficial judgment or evaluation of a person's worth based on nothing but outward appearances such as financial, social, and racial distinctions. And then on that basis alone, giving them special favor and respect, or on the other hand, neglecting or marginalizing them and treating them with disrespect. James was particularly addressing the problem of showing partiality to the rich who when they showed up for church were being given the warmest welcome and the best seats in the house, while the poor visitors were ignored and and disregarded. And though he's dealing with partiality to the rich, uh, James' words, the principles that he is teaching, applies to any sort of partiality that is based on external factors. And this matter of showing partiality is no small issue. Because as James has pointed out, it reveals a judging heart and behind that evil thoughts or evil motives. It is something that the Bible condemns in a number of ways. It's condemned by the very character of God. It's condemned by the Word of God and by the life of Christ who deals with all men with complete impartiality. I mean, James has explained that partiality is wrong because it contradicts the very heart of God, because he has chosen many of the poor for himself. It is inconsistent with the Christian faith. It is also completely illogical, because in showing partiality to the rich, they were favoring and flattering the very people, James tells us, who were oppressing them and exploiting them. Even worse, by showing partiality to the rich, they were aligning themselves with God's enemies, those who were blaspheming the very name of Christ, or as James puts it, the honorable name by which you were called. And by blaspheming his honorable and excellent name, they disgraced and discredited the Lord Jesus Christ, they offended his followers, and they sinned against God. So James is really calling his readers back to their senses. I mean, he's basically saying, do you realize who you're honoring and favoring? You know, why in the world would you fall all over yourself to show favoritism to those who are exploiting you and dragging you into court and blaspheming the name of Jesus? And James' answer to this is, do not do it. Do not show partiality. He could not be clearer. Because if there's one place where worldly distinctions have no place, it is in the church of Jesus Christ. 
And now as we come to verses 8 to 13, James addresses the fact that partiality is, first of all, a violation of God's Word in verses 8 and 9. Secondly, it's a very serious sin in verses 10 and 11. And then thirdly, with this in mind, he warns us that we should live in light of the coming judgment. So let's look now at verses 8 and 9 where James tells us partiality violates God's Word. And we read in those verses, please follow along. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And so not only is partiality or favoritism contrary to God's character, inconsistent with the Christian faith, and completely illogical, it is also contrary to God's royal law. And anything that is contrary to God's law is what? Could you say that again? That's exactly right. It's sin. And so, Jane, let's go back and look at these verses. James begins in verse 8 by saying, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So James is beginning here on a positive note. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law. But that is not, uh, he's not calling that into question. Because of the Greek construction, the word if uh, should be translated since or because, which indicates that this was in fact happening among James' readers. So the meaning is, if you are really fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, and you are, you are. So James is recognizing the fact that not everyone that he was writing to was guilty of the partiality that he has been describing. I mean, there were those and those, those wonderful saints in the church who, who were showing genuine warmth and kindness to rich visitors out of proper motives, but they were also doing the same thing for the poor visitor. I mean, James is not teaching that rich visitors should be ignored or discriminated against in favor of the poor, but rather that everyone, that all, should be received and treated with the same genuine warmth, kindness, and respect. And so James is commending here those who were actually doing that. He, he was willing and eager to give credit where credit is due. And you'll notice that he speaks of their obedience in terms of the royal law. Well, what is the royal law? Well, the expression, the royal law, occurs only here in the New Testament. And James may have referred uh, to it as a royal law because it was given by the king of kings. It was given by the king of kings to those who, by the new birth, have come into his kingdom to tell us how we're to live in his kingdom. But whatever James' reason may have been for referring to it as a royal law, it's simply another reference to the Word of God of which the law of love is the crucial element. And so what James calls the royal law is, in essence, the sum and substance of the complete Word of God. And when James says, you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, he's simply pointing, out to, he's simply pointing to the standard for fulfilling it. He's saying you really fulfill the word of God when you do so according to the scriptures. I mean, in other words, you don't fulfill the word of God according to your own standards. 
You don't fulfill the word of God according to your own thoughts or selective obedience. You only ever fulfill God's word, his commands, when you do so according to the scriptures. Because God's word is the standard. God's word is our rule for faith and practice. And the particular command James says they were fulfilling is found in both the Old and New Testaments. And what is it? Well, look back at verse 8. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That command is so important. Moses gave it in the Old Testament back in Leviticus 19.18. It is cited six times in the Synoptic Gospels. And the Apostle Paul quotes it to the Galatians and to the Romans. Jesus himself declared this to be the second greatest commandment. Next to, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And so after love for God with every ounce of moral, spiritual, mental, and physical energy, the next commandment in importance is the obligation that God places upon all of his children to love their neighbors as themselves. And who is our neighbor? Well, look to the right and to the left. Look. In front of you, behind you, look all around. And Jesus also makes clear uh, who our neighbor is. It's anyone whose need we can meet, beginning in the church and then beyond that. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus expanded the definition of neighbor to mean any needy human who God gives us an opportunity to help. I mean, just as a good Samaritan selflessly and generously met the need of the man he unexpectedly came upon on the road to Jericho who had been robbed and beaten. I mean, the Samaritan ministered to him personally and even provided for his further care by others until he was fully well. And so we are to love our neighbor. Anyone God in his providence gives us an opportunity to help. The Greek word that James uses here for love is, guess what? Agape. Which, as you know, is the highest form of love. It's a selfless, self-giving, sacrificial love. It's the love that seeks the highest good of the object love, regardless of the cost. It is not a feeling or an emotion, which is why it can be commanded. It is an attitude. It's an attitude that results in action. It is a love that acts. A love that manifests itself in selfless, humble service to meet someone else's need, no matter how low the service, no matter how unworthy and undeserving the person, no matter how difficult and inconvenient it may be. It is an intelligent and purposeful love, a love that voluntarily and sacrificially seeks the welfare of its object your neighbor. And as Jesus revealed, our neighbor is not to be limited by considerations of economic or social status, education, race, or any other external factor circumstance. Rather, it includes every human being, including foreigners and even our enemies, according to Jesus. I mean, love demands that we seek to act towards them in ways deliberately calculated to bring about their greatest good. And how are we to love our neighbor? Look, look what the verse says. 
You shall love your neighbor as what? Yourself. It's like, why don't you just slay me? As yourself. Well, how much do we humans love ourselves? Well, none of us too little and most of us way too much. And therein lies the problem. You see, contrary to what many teachers claim today, Scripture does not teach that we must learn to love ourselves before we can properly love others. That is a lie from the pit. Quite, it's quite the opposite. Scripture simply acknowledges that it is basic human nature to love ourselves. I mean, as Paul said in Ephesians 5.29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. People do not need to be urged to love themselves because we naturally love ourselves as naturally as we breathe. I mean, because we naturally love ourselves so much, whose care, whose concern, attention, and feelings are we consumed with? I mean, whose needs are, the, are we most concerned to meet? Whose mouth are we careful to feed? Whose body do we take care of and, and pamper and, and dress? Whose looks are we concerned about? Whose job and career occupies our minds? Whose pleasure are we preoccupied with? Whose life are we determined uh, to make as comfortable and as happy as possible? Our own. And when the Scriptures tell us to love our neighbors as ourselves, you know what it means? It means we must love our neighbors with the same level of concern and care that we have for ourselves. It means to take care of other people to the same degree and with the same intensity and concern that we naturally have for ourselves. And of course, this is a standard of love that is impossible, absolutely impossible to realize apart from the indwelling love of Christ in believers. One commentator wrote, The love that Moses, Jesus, and James talk about pertains to the God-given and God-blessed love that is concerned about meeting the genuine human needs of others, their physical needs, their protection, their growth in grace, holiness, and Christ-likeness in the same practical and beneficial ways in which we naturally and legitimately seek to meet our own needs. You know, because we love ourselves, we don't want to be lied to. We don't want to be slandered. We don't want to be stolen from. We don't want to be abused or cheated on. We don't want to be disregarded, treated with contempt and disrespect. And if we love others with the same degree of love and concern we have for ourselves, we will never do those things to them. And we will never show partiality. As Paul says in Romans 13.10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. And not only that, to love others in this way reflects our Heavenly Father's own nature and character. John said in 1 John 4, 7 and 8, 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. If we really loved our neighbors as ourselves, we would treat them exactly the way that we want to be treated. And so let me ask you this morning, having that biblical definition in mind of what it is to love your neighbor, do you love your neighbor as yourself? Do you? I mean, some people in the church don't even love the other people who are in the very same church. It would be a major improvement for some in the church to love their neighbors as they do their pets. That would be a major improvement. I mean, how dependable they are in, in caring for their dogs and cats. How much money do they spend on uh, them a week? I mean, they talk to their pets more than they talk to their neighbors. It's not funny. I mean, it is funny, but yet it isn't. It's actually very sad and tragic. It would be a major improvement for some to, to love their neighbors as much as they love their homes or their hobbies or their pleasure or their money or their stocks and bonds. But the Scripture, and therefore the Lord himself, tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves. I mean, love your neighbor is the commandment, and as yourself is the biblical standard. And this is not merely a nice idea, nor is it simply a suggestion nor an option. This is the royal law. This is the word of the living God by which we will be judged. I mean, this is the model, this is the command on which we're to base our human relationships, our relationships to our neighbors. And when we learn to occupy ourselves with others in the same way that we are occupied with ourselves, we'll have no problem with partiality. Because no matter whether a person is poor or rich, educated or uneducated, no matter whether they're high on the social scale or, or very low, no matter what their ethnicity, if we treat them all the same, we, the same way we treat ourselves, we will treat them all equally and without impartiality. And so the governing factor for all human relationships, in a sense, can be summed up in this one royal law made by God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Our attitudes and actions toward others are to be guided by love. James says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, and you are... As the word commands, you are loving your neighbor as yourself. He's saying to these dear saints, your attitudes and action toward others are guided by love, the same love you have for yourself. You're not showing partiality to the rich and disregarding the poor. Rather, you're receiving all men, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, equally treating them with the same genuine warmth and kindness and respect and Christian love. And in doing so, James says, you are doing well. You're doing well. 
And this could probably better be translated, you are doing excellently. Because to love others as we love ourselves is to do more than just love satisfactorily. It is to love as our Heavenly Father loves and as He wants His children to love. Loving your neighbor as yourself is God's will. It is consistent with God's glory. It is consistent with his son. It is consistent with his word. It is consistent with believing in him. And James says, if you do this, and you are, you're doing well. I mean, what a, what a great blessing and encouragement to know that in the churches James wrote to, there were believers who were loving their neighbors as themselves. Believers who were not showing partiality and doing well. I mean, demonstrating uh, the love of Christ. And what a blessing it is uh, to me for, to know of, of those in this church who do the same. You see, it's not, it's not enough to avoid discriminating against the poor. It's not enough just to uh, not be partial. I mean, that's good, but that's only half the equation. God requires that we show love. A biblical love which demands that regardless of who people are or what they believe or how they behave or or what they have, we will consistently seek to act towards them in a way deliberately calculated to bring about their greatest good. That is the biblical meaning of love. And as Christians indwelt by the Spirit of God, we have the ability to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves as we ought and thus fulfill the law of God. And may it be true. May it be true of each one of us so that it might be said of us, we are doing well. So that at the end of it all, we will be able to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. As John said, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. As Paul said, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And now in verse 9, James turns the tables from uh, the upside of fulfilling the royal law to the downside of breaking it. Look what he says in verse 9. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. I mean, here again, in the Greek construction, the word if should be translated since or because, which indicates that this was, in fact, happening among James' readers. And so the meaning is, if you show partiality, and you are, I mean, this is a statement of fact. There were those who were doing just the opposite of loving their neighbor as themselves. They were showing partiality. They were favoring the rich over the poor. And the form of the Greek word translated show partiality indicates that this was not just an occasional slip, but a continual practice. It was habitual. Now, this was habitual, blatant, continual partiality. And James says, you're continually practicing partiality, and in doing so, you're committing sin. Literally, it says, sin, you are working. 
And the word translated here, committing, means to work, to perform, and it depicts a deliberate, premeditated action. And it betrays a perverse inner attitude. And so James doesn't trivialize their actions because this is no minor issue. And this was not something they had accidentally fallen into. This wasn't simply an unfortunate oversight. It wasn't merely a matter of being inconsiderate or or discourteous. It was a deliberate, premeditated act. And James says, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So in showing partiality, they were committing sin and they stood convicted means exposed and reproved. They stood convicted by the law as transgressors. So here, the law is personified. And the law is pictured as a witness whose testimony exposes them every time they practice partiality. And the word convicted indicates that the law brings in the evidence to prove that they're wrong. And so the charge is sustained on the basis of the evidence. They were guilty of being transgressors of the law because God's Word in in both the Old and New Testaments prohibits partiality and the command to love your neighbor as yourself is violated every time anyone is discriminated against on the basis of their economic status, social class, their race, their sex, etc., etc. James readers to whom this applied could not escape the verdict that they were transgressors. I mean, John said in 1 John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, at this point, somebody's probably thinking, well, man, what in the world? I mean, James is just kind of hammering away at this, isn't he? I mean, he seems to me like he's he's making a, a, a mountain out of a very small molehill for such a small thing. I mean, everybody's a little bit partial. What's the deal with James? Why is he getting so worked up about partiality? I mean, after all, it's a common sin, right? It's, It's just part of human nature. And besides, James said there were those who were who were not showing partiality. I mean, is partiality really as as serious as all of that? Well, the answer is yes, it is. And the particular words that James uses here drive the point home. There are two main Greek words for sin in the New Testament. One is translated here simply as sin, and it means to come short of the mark or to miss the mark. The second word translated here as transgressor is literally lawbreakers, you know, one who violates the law. And this word transgressor pictures the law laying out the way of righteousness in which a man is supposed to walk. But he hasn't stayed on the path that's been laid out for him. He he has willingly, defiantly stepped over the boundary to sin. That's the picture. The word sin conveys the truth that they have not measured up to the requirements of the law, but have fallen short. Transgressor. conveys the the truth that they have deliberately violated the restrictions of the law. James considers the matter of partiality serious enough to bring in both of these concepts. 
And so it's very significant that James uses both words to condemn this kind of behavior. It tells us that partiality is not a trivial matter. In fact, it's intolerable as far as God is concerned. One man put it this way. Speaking of partiality, he said, it is an affront to God, not an amiable weakness. No sin is to be regarded as small because the God who forbids all sin is so great. Minimizing sin is a device of the devil. Beware, he said, of falling into that trap. So if you're sitting here this morning thinking, you know, what's the big deal? This doesn't seem to be that big of sin. Well, yes, it is. Because it violates the law of God. It makes you a transgressor. And to violate God's law on any level is a serious matter. I mean, God doesn't wink at sin. God doesn't overlook sin. I mean, God is too holy to even look upon sin and evil. To violate God's law, to violate God's word, his commands on any level is a serious matter. And people today have so abused grace, they don't think that it is. And now in verses 10 and 11, James tells us why this is such a serious issue. Look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of what? All of it. All of it. Now James is speaking hypothetically of someone who keeps the whole law, the entire law except for one instance, which obviously is something that no one has ever done. And we know this is purely theoretical because James himself says later in chapter 3, verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. And all men sin more frequently than once. But for the sake of argument, James says, whoever keeps the entire law but fails, you know, he sins in just one instance. James says that makes him guilty of breaking the whole law. So how many sins do you have to commit to be a sinner? One. How many laws do you have to break to be a transgressor or a lawbreaker? One. That's right. Just one. You see, James is making a profound point. We think of partiality, you know, showing favoritism as a little sin like we do so many other sins that have almost become respectable. Like Jerry Bridges wrote a book, Respectable Sins. But James says the category called little sins doesn't even exist. There's no such thing as a little sin in God's eyes. And so if we were able to keep every law, every command, which we can't, but if we could and we were to break just one law, just one command, just one time, no matter how seemingly insignificant we might think it is, James says we are accountable for and guilty of breaking all of it. And not only that, in the process, we offend the one who gives the law because our sin, all of our sin, is first and foremost against the holy God of heaven. 
Now look, James is not saying that the man who commits one sin is guilty of committing every other sin, nor is he saying that to break one part of the law is to break every other part of the law, nor that when a person breaks one law, it's then no worse to break others. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that because the law of God is an entity, it's a unity. Because it's an entity, because it's a unity, even one sin, even the sin of partiality results in the whole law being broken. I mean, for example, we could say the law is like a chain. One broken link, and the whole chain is broken. Or like a tire, one puncture, and the whole tire is flat. So to be a lawbreaker, you don't have to break all the laws. You just have to break one. Just one. And you see, this is the crushing truth. The absolutely crushing truth that has to be faced by the unbeliever who is trying to cancel out his bad deeds by his good ones. As Paul told the Galatians, every man who tries to make himself right with God by religious ritual and obedience is obligated to obey the whole law. And earlier in Galatians, he wrote in chapter 3, verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And notice the all things in that verse, everything. Paul is telling us the man seeking to get right with God by his own efforts, by his own works, is in a hopeless position because he would need to perfectly keep every single part of the law, every one of God's commands throughout his entire life. And this no man can ever do. Only one did this, and he is seated today at the right hand of the Father. And so this is why all men stand condemned before a holy God as lawbreakers, deserving of nothing but his eternal wrath and judgment. This is sinful man's condition apart from a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But James is speaking to believers. The lesson here is primarily to believers. You see, James was well aware of the tendency of human nature to make excuses for failing to obey God's Word, especially when the failure is what we consider to be some minor issue. And believe me, what you might consider to be a minor issue, God does not consider to be minor. And so James reminds them that they cannot justify their disobedience in one area by saying, well, hey, what, what is one small commandment disobeyed compared to all the others that I do obey? You know, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that our obedience to God's word and his will cannot be on a selective basis. We cannot choose the part that we like and neglect or disregard the rest. And the lesson here for Christians is that we're not allowed to pick and choose which of God's commands we want to obey and those we don't. But you see, something in us, remaining sin, I mean, something in us wants to put obedience to God's Word in the partial category. 
I mean, after all, it's, hey, it's better to straighten the room a little than to leave it a big mess, right? I mean, isn't it better to uh, follow the law partially than not at all? Isn't it better to obey sometimes and follow some laws than to break them all? I mean, come on, surely partial obedience is better than none. No, it isn't. Because selective obedience is not obedience at all. It is disobedience. And yet we have professed Christians running around, you know, all full of spiritual pride, thinking they're doing so well because they keep a few select commands while they knowingly are disobeying others. See, most Christians forget about sins of omission. I mean, they abuse God's grace, thinking that because they're under grace, they're not obligated to obey all of God's word, the the parts they don't like, you know, the parts that are inconvenient and cramp their lifestyle. But Paul told the Galatians, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.16, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You see, the law of God, the word of God, the commands of God, they're not like an examination paper where only six out of ten questions must be answered. It's a unit. Again, it's a unit that all hangs together. It's, it's like a mirror or a window. You know, a single small crack means the entire thing is broken. And so breaking God's law is like, like hitting a window with a hammer. You may only hit it in one spot. But it'll crack and break the whole thing. And that's how it is when you violate even the least, what you think is the least of God's commands. When you hit at one point, you're as guilty as breaking the hole. You're a lawbreaker and a transgressor. You see, as Christians, we're under obligation to obey all of God's word, all of his commands, every part of it. And again, to break it at one point is to be a lawbreaker. Why? Because what you're doing is defying the authority of God. You're defying the word of God. You're denying full love and devotion to God, and you're saying, I will not love you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength in that area. You know, I will not submit to you in that area. I will not obey you in that area. I will violate that area. So what you're doing is following your own will rather than the will of your Lord and Master. I mean, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord? and not obey the things that I say to you. I mean, anyone who runs around selecting a few laws to obey and a few laws to disobey and hoping they're going to balance the thing out at the end is only fooling themselves. It's absolutely and utterly foolish. Because a true heart of obedience... A true heart of obedience acknowledges, God, I want to walk in obedience to your word. I want to walk in obedience to your will and all of your commands. But Lord, I've broken them. And Lord, I've broken that law. Your word says I'm a transgressor. And now I'm coming to you, Lord, 
for cleansing and for forgiveness. That's a true heart of obedience. You see, the purpose of James here is to emphasize the sinfulness of this sin, and really we could say the sinfulness of sin, period. Because while some sin may seem a small thing to you, James is saying it's a sin of massive proportions. It's a sin of massive proportions that shatters the law of God and makes you a transgressor. And it's very, very serious. And that is James' point. Jesus said in Matthew 5.19, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In that verse, Jesus declares that he will hold those in lowest esteem who hold his word in lowest esteem. See, there's no exemption uh, for Christians uh, to disobey, uh, discredit, or belittle God's law. That Jesus doesn't refer to the loss of salvation uh, in that verse is clear from the fact that though offenders will be called least, they'll still be in the kingdom of heaven. But blessing, reward, fruitfulness, joy, and usefulness will all be sacrificed to the extent that we are disobedient. Certainly some commands in Scripture are greater than others, but none are to be disregarded. To disdain even the smallest part of God's Word is to demonstrate disdain for all of it because its parts are inseparable. And so in light of James' teaching, I mean, which of us can honestly claim to be living as we should? As one man once put it, if the best man's faults were written on his forehead, it would make him pull his hat down far over his eyes. It's exactly right, isn't it? Well, James now backs up his teaching in verse 10 with an illustration in verse 11. And he uses two extreme examples of breaking God's law, adultery and murder. Look at verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not adultery, but do, if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So it's a very simple and obvious illustration that, that clinches his point. And James begins with, for he who said, just reminding us and, and James readers that this is God's law and it has inherent power and authority because God said it. And James picks out the two most severe social sins related to human life and existence, adultery and murder, because they had the death penalty attached to them. And one man suggested that James used these two commands to just deepen the blackness of the sin of partiality by associating it with adultery and murder, both of which are equally glaring violations of the law of love. And so James makes the point that the commands, do not commit adultery and do not murder, were both spoken by God and are therefore fundamental parts of the law. And his point is simply this. 
It would be utterly absurd for a murderer to claim that he had not broken the law because he had not committed adultery. Or for the adulterer to claim that he had not broken the law because he had not committed murder. The same lawgiver who prohibited adultery also prohibited murder. If you violate either of those commands, you're a transgressor of the law. And the fact that a murderer may, may not have also committed adultery is, is not going to excuse him before God. Because you cannot violate one law and keep the other and still be an obedient believer. And all that matters is, did the guy commit murder? If so, hey, he's guilty of breaking the law. The keeping of some laws does not excuse a person for breaking others. You become a criminal by committing just one crime. You become a lawbreaker by just breaking one law. It only takes one lie to make a liar. One adulterous act to make an adulterer. One theft to make a thief. One murder to make a murderer. And only one broken law to make a lawbreaker. And so the sin of partiality is not to be taken lightly nor excused on the basis that it's not that important and we keep a lot of other laws. I mean, James ranks partiality with very serious sins, murder and adultery, to, to make his point by showing the absurdity, the absolute absurdity of partial or inconsistent obedience. And although all sins are not equally damaging or heinous, and, and not all sins carry the same consequences, but there is no such thing as a small, inconsequential, or unpunishable sin. The believers James was writing to who were practicing favoritism were flagrant lawbreakers. But Pastor James wants their conduct to be guided by their personal relationship to Jesus Christ who told his followers, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You know, Jesus said in verse 9 that if they show, or excuse me, James said in verse 9 that if they show partiality, they're guilty of being lawbreakers, and, 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 and guilt, of course, carries consequences, even for Christians. You see, we tend to think that because we're justified as believers in Jesus Christ, we won't have to give an account of ourselves someday. And in terms of our salvation or our justification, that's absolutely right. Because all of our sin, past, present, and future, is debited to Christ's account, and all of Christ's perfect obedience to the law is credited to our account. So a Christian's salvation will never be called into question. I mean, God will never review it in the future. It's, it's a finished fact. It is, forever, it is forever a settled issue. We will never stand before the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20. But then does this mean that a Christian can just live carelessly? You know, can the Christian live just as he pleases? Far from it. No Christian can afford to live carelessly because, you see, even Christians will give an account of themselves. And James now turns to this issue as he brings in the subject of judgment. He brings his discussion of partiality to a conclusion with a solemn warning that uh, that the reality of God's coming judgment should be an incentive for Christians to speak and act obediently. Look at verse 12. 
So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. You know, while the Bible teaches that for some people, you know, believers, there will be no condemnation, it does not say that there will be no judgment for anyone. In fact, it says exactly the opposite. Unbelievers are going to stand before God and face his final judgment. That is what is at, at what is called the great white throne judgment uh, described for us in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. But there is also a judgment, a, a time of reckoning for believers. Paul makes that clear in Romans 14.10 where he warns against judging a brother and, and holding a brother in contempt. And then he says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul is a little more specific about this judgment. He says there, for we must, in writing to Christians, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now understand the words good and evil there, uh, that's not speaking of moral good and moral evil. The, the word evil there means worthless or useless. So believers are not going to be judged for sin at the judgment seat of Christ. Every sin of the believer was judged at the cross. The purpose for this judgment, the purpose for the judgment seat of Christ, is for recognizing and rewarding some achievement. When believers stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to be recompensed or honored and rewarded for the deeds they have done and will only be rewarded for things of eternal value. Deeds and motives that please and glorify the Lord. And the true assessment of the work God has done in and through believers will be revealed on that day. And in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15, Paul gives a, a kind of dramatic or illustrative description of that judgment. In fact, why don't you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 for a moment. First Corinthians chapter 3, and there, here in verses 11 to 15, Paul is giving, as I said, a dramatic, you know, illustrative description of the judgment seat of Christ. Follow along as I read, beginning in 1 Corinthians 3.11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, the judgment seat of Christ, that day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, so in other words, it was, it was worthless as far as any eternal value, it'll be burned up, he will suffer loss, Though he himself will be saved, but notice, only as through fire. So when that day, the full truth about uh, our lives, character, and deeds are going to be made clear. Each one of us will discover the, the real verdict on uh, our works, our service, and our motives. 
and all hypocrisy and, and pretense will be stripped away because Paul says each man's work will become evident when it's revealed with fire. And if a man's work is judged, it will either remain or it won't remain. If he built his life on the right foundation, Jesus Christ, and he did so with gold, silver, and precious stones, and there's going to be a reward that will last. But if what he built his life with is is wood, hay, and straw, then that's going to be burned up. It won't last. He will last. He'll be saved himself, but, but his works won't, and he will suffer loss. And this speaks of real loss that we will understand as a loss. And so those things that were done out of genuine love for Christ and for his glory are going to be rewarded. All temporal matters with no eternal significance. And those things that were done out of selfish motives are are worthless in God's sight. And they're going to be burned up just like wood, hay, and, and stubble. And so a Christian must never think that at the judgment seat of Christ, his life will not be subject to examination because it most certainly will. And God is going to sift and weigh every thought, every motive, every word, every action. And on that day, the Bible says the Christian's work will be shown for what it is. One man wrote, this is sobering truth. Now that's an understatement. He said, this is sobering truth. The fact that the Christian can face the day of judgment secure in the knowledge that he will not be rejected does not mean that he is to think of it in terms of a glorified prize giving. It will be a judgment, not a jamboree. And there will certainly be what the Bible calls reward for those things that have been pleasing to God. There, there, will, with, there will, with equal certainty, be loss for those things which had grieved him. No truth in Scripture has more practical relevance for the Christian than this, that on the day of judgment, every moment of his life will come under the searching scrutiny of a holy God. He is going to be judged. And James tells us here we're going to be judged by the law of liberty. And you'll remember we saw that phrase back in chapter 1, verse 25. It's it's just a synonym for the Word of God. And why, again, does he describe God's word in this way? Well, God's word is a law in the sense that it was given by God as a standard for the express purpose of guiding and regulating our conduct. And by referring to the law as uh, the law of liberty, James focused on its redemptive power in freeing believers from the bondage of sin and then freeing them to righteous obedience. It set us free from the law of sin and death, not to serve ourselves, not for selective obedience, but rather for righteous obedience so that we might serve God, not out of fear or a mere sense of duty, but out of great gratitude and love and adoration for who He is and what He is and for all that He has done for us. And so James is saying that we will be judged by the Word of God, the law of liberty, which has set us free from sin and freed us to live a life of righteous obedience and to serve God out of gratitude and love. And it places us, this law of liberty, this law of freedom, places us as believers under obligation to obey our Lord and Master. 
Because you see, the Lord Jesus Christ holds his followers. He holds us accountable not only for our faith, but also for our works done in obedience. And so there's a time of judgment. There's there's a time of reckoning coming where we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and our lives will all be tested. And that is a fact. And it should be a powerful motivation to live a holy life and to love our neighbors as we do ourselves. And this is why James says, so speak and so act. That phrase is referring to our total conduct. You know, words alone are not enough. Because it's very easy to say to a poor brother, hey, be warmed and be filled, and then do absolutely nothing. Our words need to be accompanied by godly deeds. Again, as John wrote, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And as we'll see in the next section we study in James, uh, he has a passionate concern. And we've already seen it, uh, but it, we're going to see it again. He has a passionate concern that Christians should practice what they preach. We should li- actually live out what we say we believe. And here he stresses the importance of this by placing it in the context of the judgment seat of Christ that is coming. And he's telling us to live in light of the fact that we're, we will soon stand before Jesus Christ, who is going to judge all of our works. And as a further word of warning, he says in verse 13, notice, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Of course, the message of the gospel is that we all need mercy. We need mercy that triumphs over judgment. And praise God that that he brought justice and mercy together in the cross so that you and I can be declared right before a holy God based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I mean, thank God for that. And when you and I, when we have experienced God's mercy, we're going to show mercy to others. Because God's mercy in us is going to overflow from us. But understand, James is not saying that we need to be merciful to others in order to earn mercy before God. You can't earn mercy. You can't earn mercy. It's mercy because it can't be earned. Now this text is saying you can tell who has received mercy from God by the way they show mercy to others. You see, the heart, which has been the object of divine mercy and grace, will be merciful. And this is why Jesus declared in the fifth beatitude, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I mean, if mercy is evident in someone's life, then clearly Christ, by his mercy, is dwelling within them. But on the other hand, if mercy is not evident in someone's life, And there may be reason to wonder whether Christ, by his mercy, is really dwelling within them. Because an unmerciful spirit reveals a heart that has not received mercy. You see, what we do or what we do not do says far more about the the authenticity of our faith than what we say. 
We demonstrate our nature by our conduct. True Christian character is evident in the way we treat other people. And the believer who is indwelt by the Spirit of God and growing in Christ's likeness should be increasingly manifesting his new nature by acts of grace and mercy and love toward others. Because look, Christians are are the children of God. And as his children, we bear his image. We follow his example. It is therefore impossible for us to not share in his compassion. It is impossible impossible for us to fail, I mean, to consistently fail to reflect his mercy. And so if we do not extend mercy, then we're demonstrating that we have not received mercy. And James tells us here that judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. But those who have been truly saved, they're going to give evidence of the merciful character of the God who saved them and dwells within them. I mean, for crying out loud, you, you can't have the, uh, you know, the, the, the true and the living God, the spirit of the living God invade your soul and it not change your outward conduct. Those who have truly been saved are going to give evidence of the merciful character of the God who saved them. And that evidence then assures them that they have been truly been saved and therefore have nothing to fear on the day of judgment. Why? Because mercy triumphs over judgment. I mean, although not even the, the best Christian deserves to stand in God's presence, And although every Christian has continually fallen short of God's glory in his daily life, God's mercy will triumph over the judgment that would otherwise overwhelm his people. When the saintly Puritan theologian Thomas Hooker lay on his deathbed in 1647, somebody said to him, Brother, are you going to receive the reward of your labors? To which Hooker replied, Brother, I am going to receive mercy. I'm going to receive mercy. For those who have faith in Christ, God's mercy triumphs over our guilt and judgment. And so may God give us all a desire to be doers of the word. May we, by the grace and strength that he supplies, live Lives that are consistent with God's Word. I mean, lives that are consistent with who we are as children of God, specifically lives that are free of partiality and favoritism. You know, loving our neighbors as ourselves, demonstrating mercy and accepting others, especially those who are different from us, those who may even make us uncomfortable, and and those who are less fortunate than we are. May we be increasingly like Uh, Jesus himself, who loves the sinner, who is not partial, who blesses all kinds of people, rich, poor, male, female, Jew, Gentile, I mean, whatever. That's the kind of people we need to be. That's the kind of character that we need to reflect. And as I said, may God help us to do that. 
because only God by his spirit can produce that kind of loving and merciful character within us. Amen. Let's bow our heads. behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.